Chapter 17 of The Skylark of Valeron by E. E. Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 17 Sibling never knew exactly what happened during those first few minutes, nor exactly how it happened. One minute in his sturdy plane he was setting up his diversion by directing a powerful beam of force upon the green dome of the invaders. Suddenly his rocket ship had been blasted apart and he had been hurled away from the madly spinning, gyrating wreckage. He had a confused recollection of sitting down violently upon something very hard and perceived dully that he was lying asprawl upon the inside of a greenishly shimmering globe some twenty feet in diameter. Its substance had the hardness of chilled steel, yet it was almost perfectly transparent, seemingly composed of cold green flame, pale almost to invisibility. He also observed in an incurious foggy fashion that the great dome was rushing toward him at an appalling pace. He soon recovered from his shock, however, and perceived that the peculiar ball in which he was imprisoned was a shell of force, of formula and pattern entirely different from anything known to the scientists of Valeron. Keenly alive and interested now, he noted with high appreciation exactly how the wall of force that was the dome merged with and made way for and closed smoothly behind the relatively tiny globe. Inside the dome he stared around him, amazed and not a little awed. Upon the ground, the center of that immense hemisphere, lay a featureless, football-shaped structure which must be the vessel of the invaders. Surrounding it there were massed machines and engineering structures of unmistakable form and purpose, drills, derricks, shaft-heads, skips, hoists, and other equipment for boring and mining. From the lining of the huge dome there radiated a strong, lurid, yellowish-green light which intensified to positively ghastliness the natural color of the gaseous chlorine which replaced the familiar air in that walled-off volume so calmly appropriated to their own use by the outlanders. As his shell was drawn downward toward the strange scene, Sibylin saw many moving things beneath him, but was able neither to understand what he saw nor to correlate it with anything in his own knowledge or experience. For those beings were amorphous. Some flowed along the ground, formless blobs of matter. Some rolled like wheels or like barrels. Many crawled rapidly, snake-like. Others resembled animated pancakes, undulating flatly and nimbly about upon a dozen or so short tentacular legs. Only a few, vaguely manlike, walked upright. A glass cage, some eight feet square and seven high, stood under the towering bulge of the great ship's side, and as his shell of force engulfed it and its door swung invitingly open, Sibylin knew that he was expected to enter it. Indeed, he had no choice. The fabric of cold flame that had been his conveyance and protection vanished, and he had scarcely time to leap inside the cage and slam the door before the noxious vapors of the atmosphere invaded the space from which the shell's impermeable wall had barred it. To die more slowly but just as surely from suffocation? No, 
The cage was equipped with a thoroughly efficient oxygen generator and air purifier. There were stores of Valeronian food and water. There were a chair, a table, and a narrow bunk. And, wonder of wonders, there were even kits of toilet articles and of changes of clothing. Far above a great door opened. The cage was lifted, and, without any apparent means, either of support or of propulsion, it moved through the doorways and along various corridors and halls, coming finally to rest upon the floor in one of the innermost compartments of the Sky Rover. Siblin saw masses of machinery, panels of controlling instruments, and weirdly multiform creatures at station, but he had scant time even to glance at them, his attention being attracted instantly to the middle of the room, where, lying in a heavily reinforced shallow cup of metal upon an immensely strong low table, he saw a... a something, and for the first time an inhabitant of Valoran saw at close range one of the invaders. It was in no sense a solid, nor a liquid, nor yet a jelly, although it seemed to partake of certain properties of all three. In part it was murkily transparent, in part greenishly translucent, in part turbidly opaque, but in all it was intrinsically horrible. But that it was sentient and intelligent there could be no doubt. Not only could its malign mental radiations be felt, but its brain could be plainly seen, a huge, intricately convolute organ suspended in an unyielding but plastic medium of solid jelly. Its skin seemed thin and frail, but Sibylin was later to learn that that tegument was not only stronger than rawhide, but was more pliable, more elastic, and more extensible than the finest rubber. As the Valeronian stared in helpless horror, that peculiar skin stretched locally almost to vanishing thinness, and an enormous cyclopean eye developed. More than an eye. It was a special organ for a special sense which humanity has never possessed. A sense combining ordinary vision with something infinitely deeper, more penetrant, and more powerful. Vision, hypnotism, telepathy, thought transference, something of all three, yet in essence a thing beyond any sense or faculty known to us or describable in language, had its being in the almost visible, almost tangible beam of force which emanated from the single temporary eye of the thing, and bored through the eyes and deep into the brain of the Valeronian. Sibylin's very senses reeled under the impact of that wave of mental power, but he did not quite lose consciousness. So you are one of the ruling intelligences of this planet? One of its most advanced scientists? The scornful thought formed itself coldly clear in his mind. We have always known, of course, that we are the highest form of life in the universe, and the fact that you are so low in the scale of mentality only confirms that knowledge. It would be surprising, indeed, if such a noxious atmosphere as yours could nurture any real intelligence. It will be highly gratifying to report to the Council of Great Ones that not only is this planet rich in the materials we seek, but that its inhabitants, while intelligent enough to do our bidding in securing those materials, 
are not sufficiently advanced to cause us any trouble. Why did you not come in peace? Siblin thought back, neither cowed nor shaken. He was merely amazed at the truculently overbearing mien of the strange entity. Bah! snapped the amoebus savagely. That is the talk of a weakling, the whining, begging, reasoning of a race of low intelligence, one which knows and acknowledges itself inferior. Know you, feeble brain, that we of Chlora, to substitute an intelligible word for the unpronounceable and untranslatable thought-image of his native world, neither require nor desire cooperation. We are in no need either of assistance or of instruction from any lesser and lower form of life. We instruct. Other races, such as yours, either obey or are obliterated. I brought you aboard this vessel because I am about to return to my own planet and had decided to take one of you with me, so that the other great ones of the Council may see for themselves what form of life this Valoron boasts. If your race obeys our commands implicitly and does not attempt to interfere with us in any way, we shall probably permit most of you to continue your futile lives in our service, such as in mining for us certain ores which, relatively abundant upon your planet, are very scarce upon ours. As for you, personally, perhaps we shall destroy you after the other great ones have examined you. Perhaps we shall decide to use you as a messenger to transmit our orders to your fellow creatures. Before we depart, however, I shall make a demonstration which should impress upon even such feeble minds as those of your race the futility of any thought of opposition to us. Watch carefully. Everything that goes on outside is shown in the view-box. Although Siblin had neither heard, felt, nor seen the captain issue any orders, all was in readiness for the take-off. The mining engineers were all on board, the vessel was sealed for flight, and the navigators and control officers were at their panels. Siblin stared intently into the view-box, the three-dimensional visiplate that mirrored faithfully every occurrence in the neighborhood of the chlorine vessel. The lower edge of the hemisphere of force began to contract, passing smoothly through or around, the spectator could not decide which, the ruins of Mosulin hugging or actually penetrating the ground, allowing not even a whiff of its precious chlorine content to escape into the atmosphere of Valeron. The ship then darted into the air, and the shrinking edge became an ever-decreasing circle upon the ground beneath her. That circle disappeared as the meeting edge fused and the wall of force, now a hollow sphere, contained within itself the atmosphere of the invaders. High over the surface of the planet sped the Chlorin Raider toward the nearest Valorian city, which happened to be only a small village. Above the unfortunate settlement the callous monstrosity poised its craft to drop its dread curtain of strangling, choking death. Down the screen dropped, rolling out to become again a hemispherical wall, sweeping before it every milliliter of the life-giving air of Valoron 
and drawing behind it the noxious atmosphere of chlora. For those who have ever inhaled even a small quantity of chlorine, it is unnecessary to describe in detail the manner in which those villagers of Valeron died. For those who have not, no possible description could be adequate. Suffice to say, therefore, that they died horribly. Again the wall of force rolled up, coming clear up to the outer skin of the cruiser this time, in its approach liquefying the chlorine and forcing it into the storage chambers. The wall then disappeared entirely, leaving the marauding vessel starkly outlined against the sky. Then, further, and even more strongly to impress the raging but impotent Klynor sibling, "'Beam it down!' the amoebus captain commanded, and various officers sent out thin whip-like tentacles toward their controls. Projectors swung downward and dense green pillars of flaming energy erupted from the white-hot refractories of their throats. And what those green pillars struck subsided instantly into a pool of hissing molten glass. Methodically they swept the entire area of the village. "'You monster!' shrieked Sibylin, white, shaken, almost beside himself. "'You vile, unspeakable monster!' Of what use is such a slaughter of innocent men? They have not harmed you." "'Indeed they have not, nor could they,' the amoebus interrupted callously. "'They mean nothing whatever to me in any way. I have gone to the trouble of wiping out this city to give you and the rest of your race an object lesson, to impress upon you how thoroughly unimportant you are to us and to bring home to you your abject helplessness. Your whole race is, as you have just shown yourself to be, childish, soft, and sentimental, and therefore incapable of real advancement. On the contrary, we, the masters of the universe, do not suffer from silly inhibitions or from foolish weaknesses." The eye faded out its sharp outlines blurring gradually as its highly specialized parts became transformed into or were replaced by the formless gel composing the body of the creature. The amoebus then poured himself out of the cup, assumed the shape of a doughnut, and rolled rapidly out of the room. When the chlorine captain had gone, Siblin threw himself upon his narrow bunk, fighting savagely to retain his self-control. He must escape! He must escape! The thought repeated itself endlessly in his mind. But how? The glass walls of his prison were his only defense against hideous death. Nowhere in any chlorine thing, nowhere in any nook or cranny of the noisome planet towards which he was speeding could he exist for a minute except inside the cell which his captors were keeping supplied with oxygen. No tools! nothing from which to make a protective covering, no way of carrying air, nowhere to go. Helpless, helpless! Even to break that glass meant death. At last he slept fitfully, and when he awoke the vessel was deep in interplanetary space. His captors paid no further attention to him. He had air, food, and water, and if he chose to kill himself that was of no concern to them. 
and Siblin, able to think more calmly now, studied every phase of his predicament. There was absolutely no possibility of escape. Rescue was out of the question. He could, however, communicate with Valeron, since in his belt were tiny sender and receiver, attached by tight beams to instruments in the laboratory of the Quadrans. Detection of that pencil beam might well mean instant death, but that was a risk which, for the good of humanity, must be run. Lying upon his side he concealed one earplug under his head and manipulated the tiny sender in his belt. Quadrin Rodnor, Quadrin Vornell, he called for minutes with no response. Truly something of grave import must have happened to cause complete desertion of that laboratory. However, it mattered little. His messages would be recorded. He went on to describe in detail, tersely, accurately, and scientifically, everything that he had observed and deduced concerning the chlorins, their forces, and their mechanisms. We are now approaching the planet, he continued, now an observer reporting what he saw in the viewbox. It is apparently largely land. It has north and south polar ice caps. A dark area, which I take to be an ocean, is the most prominent feature visible at this time. It is diamond-shaped, and its longer axis, lying north and south, is about one-quarter of a circumference in length. Its shorter axis, about half that length, lies almost upon the equator. We are passing high above this ocean, going east. East of the ocean, and distant from it about one-fifth of a circumference, lies quite a large lake, roughly elliptical in shape, whose major axis lies approximately northeast and southwest. We are dropping toward a large city upon the southeast shore of this lake, almost equally distant from its two ends. Since I am to be examined by a so-called Council of Great Ones, it may be that this city is their capital. No matter what happens, do not attempt to rescue me, as it is entirely hopeless. Escape is likewise impossible because of the lethal atmosphere. There is a strong possibility, furthermore, that I may be returned to Valeron as a messenger to our race. This possibility is my only hope of returning. I am sending this data, and will continue to send it as long as it is possible, simply to aid you in deciding what shall be done to defend our civilization against these monsters. We are now docking near a large hemispherical dome of force. My cell is being transported through the atmosphere toward that dome. It is opening. I do not know whether my beam can pass out through it, but I shall keep on sending. Inside the dome there is a great building toward which I am floating. I am inside the building, inside a glass compartment which seems to be filled with air. Yes, it is air for the creatures who are entering it are wearing protective suits of some transparent substance. Their bodies are now globular, and they are walking, each upon three short legs. One of them is developing an eye similar to the one I discur— Sibylin's message stopped in the middle of a word. The eye had developed, and in its weirdly hypnotic grip the Valorian was helpless to do anything of his own volition. Obeying the telepathic command of the Great One, he stepped out into the larger room and divested himself of his scanty clothing. One of the monstrosities studied his belt briefly, recognized his communicator instruments for what they were, and kicked them scornfully into a corner, 
thus rendering it impossible for either captive or captors to know it when that small receiver throbbed out its urgent message from Quadrin Rodnor. The inspection and examination finished, it did not take long for the monstrosities to decide upon a course of action. "'Take this scum back to its own planet as soon as your cargo is unloaded,' the chief great one directed. "'You must pass near that planet on your way to explore the next one, and it will save time and inconvenience to let it carry our message to its fellows.' Out in space, speeding toward distant Valoron, the captain again communicated with Siblin. I shall land you close to one of your inhabited cities, and you will at once get in touch with your bardile. You already know what your race is to do, and you have in your cage a sample of the ore with which you are to supply us. You shall be given twenty of your days in which to take from the mine already established by us enough of that ore to load this ship ten thousand tons. The full amount and pure mineral, mind you, no base rock, must be in the loading hoppers at the appointed time, or I shall proceed to destroy every populated city, village, and hamlet upon the face of your globe. But that particular ore is rare, protested Sibylin. I do not believe that it will prove physically possible to recover such a vast amount of it in the short time you are allowing us. You understand the orders. Obey them or die. End of chapter 17